Okay, good morning. How are you all doing? The Lord be with you. That's what I like to hear. You can go ahead and take your seats. It's good to see you on this snowy Sunday morning here in Colorado Springs. Thanks for braving the elements to be with us. Uh, if this is your first time with us, my name is Andrew. I'm the lead pastor here at New Life East. And uh, it's a joy to have you in our house this morning. Uh, so make sure after the service, if this is your first time with us, come up and say hi to me. Uh, I would love to meet you and help get you connected, answer any questions you might have about our community. One thing I need to say to you before we get started this morning is uh, just a good report to pass along. So you might have heard over the last few weeks that uh, we've been in this Adoptive Families Initiative. And so needy families both inside our community and outside of our community who wouldn't be able uh, to provide Christmas for their families, we decided uh, to take on about 40 of those families to see if we could get them adopted. And I'm so uh, happy to report that last Sunday morning, you, the first service, adopted all of the families. So good job, New Live East. And uh, the second service was so put out by that that they decided, they actually came to us and they said, well, can we just go out and buy a bunch of gift cards and bring them just to like bolster the Christmas morning even more for those families? And of course we said yes to that. So uh, first service and second service working together to help these families. Jesus says, whatever you do for the least one of these brothers and sisters of mine, you do it unto who? That's right. And so when we do these things, we do them straight unto Jesus. This is our worship. This is our service. This is our sacrifice. So great job, New Life East. There are, I'll just let you know, more opportunities to be generous before the year is up. If you've been around here most of the year, you probably know that across all of our New Life congregations, one of the things that we have been working on this year is paying off New Life's debt. When Pastor uh, Brady, our senior pastor at the main uh, campus, took over 15 years ago, New Life was in something like $30 million of debt. And we have been faithfully and slowly chipping away at that over the years. And then late last year, the elders of our church got together and said, we really feel like the Lord is calling us to just knock this debt out in a single year. And we had at that point about nine and a half million dollars to go. And so this year has been a big year of giving around New Life Church. I'm happy to report this morning that because of the faithful giving, both you and folks across all the New Life congregations, we are now under $5 million worth of debt. And we had nine and a half million dollars when we started the year. So give thanks to God for that. And the end is in sight. And um, so some of you have very deep pockets and you're able to support the work of God in a huge way. Uh, just lay that before the Lord and ask God what he would have you give. And some of you, you can only give a little bit, but that counts too. Every little bit helps. And what that does, just so that you're clear, is that it doesn't buy private jets for New Life staff. We don't do that. We don't roll that way. What it does is it clears all that money off the books so that we can use that for growing the ministry here, expanding things like Mary's Home and the Dream Centers, adding new congregations, which by the way, adding new congregations is the best way to reach the lost. And so that's a priority for us. And so if you believe in this ministry, I'd encourage you just to hold that uh, before the Lord. Sound good? First Sunday of Advent. Oh, brothers and sisters, <laughs> I love the Advent season. And Advent, if you're not familiar, we've said it a couple of different times this morning. But Advent is that moment in the church calendar when we begin to groan afresh for the coming of God in the world. Advent comes uh, from the Latin word Adventus. Can I hear you say Adventus? Which just means coming. It's coming. And the coming of God, that notion that God may break in at any time, that's actually built into the deep structure of our faith. Think about the creed 
that we say most Sundays that we gather here. We talk about the second person. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten, uh, uh, begotten, not made of one being with the Father. And then it says, later in the creed, it says that he what? He came down, right? He was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and he became truly human. Like, there was an advent of Jesus Christ into the world in the incarnation. And towards the end of that stanza, talking about Jesus, it says that he will return, what? Again, in glory, to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. And so many of us are asking the question, is there a God? (laughs) And of course, Christianity answers unequivocally, yes, there is a God. But if we've answered that question in the affirmative, is there a God? Sometimes for a lot of people, the bigger question that we hold is does God ever actually like interject himself in our experience? Another way of saying that is like, is our world open to God? And Christianity steps right in there and says, oh yes. Our world is so very open to God. Not only is it pervaded with his presence at all times, but if you pay careful attention, there are moments where God injects himself into our history, where we could say this, we could say that our world, all of a sudden we recognize it to be porous, that God can actually leak into our experience in a fresh way. And so here we are, Andrew said it at the beginning of the service, that we stand, the church stands before the first coming of Jesus uh, at Bethlehem all those many thousand years ago. And then the second coming at the end of history, we wait upon that. Karl Barth said it so beautifully when he said this, he said, what other season, you can put the, put the first slide up on the screen, what other time or season can or will the church ever have but that of Advent? That until the kingdom comes in full, we're always in our own way waiting on the coming of the Lord, opening our eyes up to his presence. Here's the text that I want to begin with this morning. This is Matthew chapter 24, starting in verse 36. Jesus says, but about that day... The hour of his coming, that day or that hour, nobody knows. Not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. And as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. From the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what happened until the flood came and took them all away. And that's how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken, the other left. Two women grinding grain with a handmill, one will be taken, and the other left. Therefore, Jesus says, What? Keep watch. Because you don't know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, that if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would, not, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So also you must be ready. Because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you don't expect him. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord and all God's people said. So Lord, here we are. Jesus, you tell us to keep watch, to keep watch for God. Not just at the end of history, but we're looking for God in our lives now. We're watching and we're waiting, looking for God. We pray this morning, Paul says, I'm praying that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you might know. And so I pray that this morning there would be an opening of our eyes and an enlightening of our hearts. God, help us see you. Help us understand you. Give us some glimpse of what you're up to in our midst and help us know what you're asking us to do and what you're asking us to be. 
And surround, I pray this morning, surround our hearts with an atmosphere of your peace and a sense of confidence that you're working all things together for good. Grant that, we pray, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said. Jesus says, therefore, keep watch. Be ready, Jesus says, because the Son of Man will come in an hour that you don't expect him. God will break in. God can break into your experience at any moment. So keep watch, he says. Be alert. Be ready for the signs of his presence. When I think of Advent, I think of one of my favorite psalms, Psalm 130. The psalmist says, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand, but with you there is forgiveness so that we can with reverence serve you. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits. And in his word, I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than the watchmen wait for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord. For with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. I wait for the Lord, the psalmist says, my whole being waits. Have you ever been there? Where you just needed God to move so badly. And it just wasn't like one thing in your life. Like, oh yeah, the spiritual part of me is kind of waiting on God, but the other parts of me are just sort of like whatever. No, no, no. Like you need God to break in. And so the psalmist says, my whole being waits for God. God, I need you. And the ache of that and the pang of that, the almost hurt that that creates in our hearts. Where is God? God, why are you taking so long to hear my cry? Out of the depths, the psalmist says, I cry to you. Lord, hear my voice. That's an Advent cry. We didn't really celebrate Advent, when I was a kid growing up, I grew up in a non-denominational, Pentecostal, charismatic church. And so we were pretty peppy type. Happy clappy, I think, is the word for it. And um, my parents grew up, they were born and raised in a Lutheran church. And my dad has a very good voice. He's actually a worship leader at a theater background. And so I'll never forget it. I was eight or nine years old. And one Sunday morning in December, we finished our happy clappy, very peppy worship set. And then my dad got up in a room about this size, three or 400 people gathered. No instruments, no nothing. And in the middle of that big open room, he began. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here. Until the Son of appear, rejoice. And just like you're feeling probably now, the song just swept me off my feet. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. Ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appears. Come, thou day spring. Come and cheer our spirits by thine advent here. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows put to flight. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall 
shall come to thee. Oh, Israel, Advent names that space. That we're in this space of mourning. We're in this space of loneliness. We're in a space of exile. And we're waiting for the appearance of the Son of God somehow to come and put things right. If you've ever felt that ache before, you've been in Advent. What other time or season can or will the church ever have but that of Advent? That's what Karl Barth says. That's why he says it. Because we're waiting for the world to get put back together again. And all of us are waiting on God for something. I remember years ago pastoring in Denver. We pastored a little group of 70, 80, 90 people. And it was a Sunday night in 2010, 2011 maybe. This tiny group, very young people, 20s and 30s. And we were gathered there for worship one night. And this woman walked in who was decades removed from where anybody else was. She was probably in her 50s. And uh, she had long hair, like parted down the middle, graying hair. And she was wearing this tie-dyed shirt. And I went, this is a miracle. We have a grown-up human in our midst. And she sat with us and stayed with us week after week after week. Then I got to know her a little bit and started to fall in love with this woman. And was so curious about her story. And one Lent... We decided that uh, we were going to baptize people on Easter Sunday, and so we're going to offer a baptism class all during Lent. And so I opened that up to people. Hey, if you've never been baptized before, we would love to do that. We have a baptism class. We'd love for you to be part of it. And Pam was her name. Pam came forward and she said, I would love to be part of the baptism class, Andrew. And also I would love to offer my apartment. We didn't have space to meet in at the time other than our Sunday evening space. She said, I'd love to offer my apartment if that would be a meaningful space for us to gather and do the class. And I said, Pam, that'd be great. We'd love to do it. And so we gathered at her place, little rundown apartment just off of East Colfax in Denver. And I remember going into her place and starting to learn about her life. And week after week, we would meet and we would talk about what goes into our baptism and why we get baptized and what it's all about. And I would linger afterwards with Pam to talk with her and hear more about her story. And I came to learn that Pam had had a long and very hard life. She was on drugs for many years and homeless for many years. And all of her years on drugs and living on the street had broken her body and just left her with searing pain. And she came to our services week after week and she was at that baptism class week after week. And I remember her saying to me, Andrew, I just don't understand it. I love God. And I've come to know God as my papa, my father. But I don't understand why he's not doing anything to help me. Why isn't he taking the pain away from my body? Why isn't he healing me? Why isn't he restoring me? Why isn't he making the stuff of my life right? Andrew, why is Papa taking so long? I would be willing to bet all of the money in my pocket that every single one of you in this room, you have something in your life that's just like that. That you have been waiting on God for what feels like forever. God, where are you? Papa, Jesus, Holy Spirit, I've come to know you and I've come to know your love and your goodness and your power, but there is this thing that I just can't figure out. How does it fit? How does it go together? When will it be made right? When will it be restored? We're all holding that cry in our hearts before the Lord. Why is Papa taking so long? The question that I think our faith poses to us is this, why, well, why does God make us wait? Why does God make us wait? 
And I wish I had a good answer for that question. I don't, I don't. I don't have a solid answer. I don't have a definitive answer to that question. Mostly because the scripture doesn't provide us with a solid answer or a definitive answer to that question. But what it does do is it scatters these hints and suggestions about just God, what God may be up to. Watch this. This is Second Peter chapter 3. Peter, one of Jesus' best friends, they had watched Jesus ascend into heaven with his promise that he would return again one day to restore all things. And Peter had been waiting and waiting. That early church thought that Jesus, after he'd gone away, that he would reappear at any time and close up shop. And he hadn't done it. And Peter is wrestling with this question of why God is taking so long. And he says this, but don't forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years, he says, are like a day. And the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. As some understand slowness, instead, what is he? He's patient with you. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Think about what Peter is saying here. He's saying, you know, at any time, you got to understand, God could snap his fingers and end history and he could give you the breakthrough that you wanted, the coming of God that you're seeking, or the great coming of God at the end of all things. That could happen in a moment. And Peter goes, the best that I can tell is that God is not delaying and keeping his promises. But what he's doing is he's exercising a measure of patience. And why is he doing it? Well, Peter thinks that that actually has something to do with salvation, that he doesn't want anyone to perish, but he wants everybody to come into salvation. That somehow what feels like the delay of God is actually a strategy of God's to get all of the things that God really wants in the end. That it's not that he's delaying because he's absent-minded or indifferent to our plight, but he's delaying because he has something else going on. Think about the great story of Joseph in the Old Testament. You might remember it. The youngest of 12 brothers, and he has a dream one night that all of his brothers and his family are going to bow down to him and serve him. And so in the innocence of his heart, he goes to his brothers and his family and he tells them that story provoking envy and jealousy with his brothers and they sell him off into slavery. You remember the story. And he gets taken into Egyptian slavery and eventually uh, winds up as the manager of Herod's household. And I have to believe that in those long years of Joseph waiting in the dungeons of Egypt or Joseph being alienated from his family, I have to believe that like the psalmist, he also cried out, out of the depths I cry to you, O God. God, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you kept a record of sins, oh God, who could stand, but with you there's forgiveness that we can reverence, serve you. I'm waiting on you. God, break in. God, make all things right. I have to believe that he was waiting on that. And I have to believe that Joseph would have loved a moment where God ripped open the heavens and the earth and brought judgment down upon his brothers and made all things right and put all things together and vindicated him in some way and gave him everything that he wanted. Instead, God took this long, deliberate route many, 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 many years later. All of a sudden, Joseph and his brothers are reunited and a famine is staved off because of Joseph's leadership in Egypt. And you'll remember the great story, the great statement of Joseph at the end of the story. He says that what you intended was to harm me but God did something else with it. What did he do? 
He intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. That it's not just Joseph that gets his vindication at the end, but Joseph gets a reconciliation with his brothers in which all of these holy tears of repentance fall. But it's not just Joseph and his brothers and their family, but it's a whole region is saved because of what looked like the great delay of God in Joseph's life. The Lord, Peter says, is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he's what? Say it loud, church. Instead, he's, he's patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but wanting everybody to come to repentance. That somehow what Joseph didn't know but had to have faith to believe was that God was secretly at work behind the scenes creating the kind of salvation that Joseph could have only dreamed of. Friends, I'm trying to say to you this morning that that thing that you're holding in your heart where you're like, why in the world is God taking so long? Maybe, just maybe, God has more in mind for that thing than you have in mind for that thing. So the question that we need to ask ourselves is, is God always doing his best for us? Is God always doing his best? Or does God slack off here and there? Does God get negligent? Does God get careless? Or is God the kind of deity who can be overpowered by circumstances? Oh, Jonathan, I really would have loved to have done better for you. But you know, that devil, he's a bad devil. Come on. Come on, guys. The psalmist says, one thing God has spoken, two things have I heard. You, O oh God, are strong and you, God, are loving. You're strong and you're loving. Is our strong and loving God always doing his best for us? That's the question. Then the signature of God in salvation history, by the way, is that God does often take these long, circuitous routes that feel like great delays. Think about the great story of the Old Testament is one delay after another. God taking a very, very, very long time to break in in any really obvious kind of way. And when God finally does break in in a seemingly obvious way in the person of Jesus, I mean, think, guys, about the ministry of Jesus. The ministry of Jesus is him appearing on the scenes, but nobody recognizes him really as God, although he starts doing these miracles, right? Miracles and signs and wonders, and he's healing people and raising them from the dead, and he's preaching to the thousands, and he's feeding thousands and thousands of people. And at that moment, when he starts finally kind of deliberately making the world right in a way that's very obvious, what does everybody want to do? They want to make him a king by force. Oh, this is it. It's all happening right now. Jesus, why don't you ascend to the throne, boot out all the bad people? This is the moment. And what does Jesus do instead, guys? He dies, <laughs> lets go of the movement. He dies, is raised to life again on the third day. And the disciples are sitting with him and they go, now that you're raised to life, surely this is the moment when you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel, right, Jesus? And what does he do? He punts. He says, it's not for you to know the times or the dates that the father has set by his own authority but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be witnesses. Okay, so what are you doing, Jesus? Bye. And he's gone. This strange way that God saves the world. 
but somehow we believe that God is saving the world by it. If it was for our good that Jesus had stayed among us after his resurrection, don't you think that he would have? But instead he's left and left us with the invisible testimony of the Holy Spirit. C.S. Lewis in one of his books said that this way that God operates, he said, it's left-handed power versus right-handed power. What's right-handed power? Lewis said that right-handed power is obvious power, direct power, that kind of power that shows up and fixes everything and bullies everybody into submission. What's left-handed power? He says it's indirect power. The kind of power that works by the long arts of persuasion. It doesn't coerce, it persuades, it woos. That's what Peter is saying. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he's what? He's, pa- and he's, he's patient with who? With you, with all of us. Not wanting anybody to perish, but wanting everybody to come unto repentance. Is it possible, guys, that the great delays of our lives, where it feels like God isn't moving, he isn't breaking in, that those are actually part of the grand design of God to get all of the things that God wants. And if we could see now the end of the story, it would make us weep with gratitude and joy. That's, by the way, why there will be so much weeping at the end of all things. The scripture says that when he comes again in glory to judge the living and the dead, one of the things that he's going to have to do is what? Wipe away the tears from our eyes. They're not going to be tears of regret. They're going to be tears of gratitude. I can't believe you did it like this. Thank you, God. See, friends, this is what the scripture says. That we live by faith and not by sight. We live by faith that God is working behind the scenes and he's working all things together for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. You say, Andrew, if that's the case, if God is working behind the scenes, then what am I supposed to be doing? The Bible gives us a very clear answer. We're supposed to watch. Everybody say watch and pray. Everybody say pray. We watch and we pray. Listen to what Paul says, Colossians chapter 4, verse 2. Paul writes this. He says, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. Then he says this in verse 3. And pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message, so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. But Paul says, be watchful in prayer. And also pray for us that God who's working behind the scenes will one day open up a door for our message and pray that we'll have the eyes to respond to that and be able to run through it. Paul assumes that God is working behind the scenes. So what's the church supposed to do? We're supposed to watch and pray. Or listen to this. James, the half-brother of Jesus, puts it so well, where he says, Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and the spring Rains, you too be patient and stand firm. Why? Because the Lord's coming is near. What does the farmer do? Waiting for the autumn and the spring rains. Waiting for the crops to emerge. How much control, ladies and gentlemen, how much control does the farmer have over the autumn and the spring rains? None. How much control does he have over whether the land produces its harvest? None. He watches and he waits 
for the great coming. That's our call in all of the stuff of our lives. And it's not just the very, very large things. It's all of those little critical junctures. We watch and we pray, assuming that and believing that God is at work in all things for our good. Back in 2016, Mandy and I were in our seventh, going on our eighth year of ministry in Denver. And you've heard me say before, we love that church. I had every intention of finishing my time as a pastor at that church. I could think of nothing better in my life than to go to one place, find a group of people that you love and a work that you love and just go die there, you know. And I remember getting to 2016 and I went on a three-month sabbatical with every intention of just kind of getting strong on that sabbatical and recouping and then getting back to work. And I remember halfway through the sabbatical, uh, the Lord spoke in such a clear way that our time at the church was done. And I just knew it in my spirit. I remember saying it to Mandy. Mandy, I just have this feeling. She said, I've been feeling the same way. We had unity around that. And then I remember starting to think about what the next steps were supposed to be. Okay, now that I've come to this grand realization, you're like, I've told this church like forever that I'm going to be there forever. I'm going to be there for 30 years. But now I've got this thing that I know that the Lord has spoken to me in my heart. What am I supposed to do about this? And I remember thinking, I got to, get on the phone with the elders. I got to call an emergency meeting of the church. We got to make a decision to do something right now. (laughs) And then I thought, but if I do that, I'm going to explode the church. God almighty, what am I supposed to do? And I remember talking to an old man in the faith, a sage, who could see that I was just so twisted up about the whole thing. And he took in the whole story and he said, Andrew, do you know what I think you need to do? And I said, what? Please tell me. He said, I think you just need to go back to work and chill out. So what kind of advice is that? Some wise man. How, how am I going to go back to work and just chill out? Don't you understand what's burning in my spirit? Don't you understand that God has spoken to us about what's next? How, how could I ever just go back there and chill out? He said, just go back to work but go and be watchful of what God is doing. And I promise you, and these are words that I will never forget. I've probably shared them with some of you in this room. He said this to me. He said, you can trust that if the Lord is really doing this in your life, he's going to curate the path for you. And you won't have to manipulate it and you won't have to press the eject button. You won't have to do any of that. You just go back and what you'll do is you'll watch for signs of his presence and God will open up doors and set up conversations. And I promise you, you'll get where you need to go in the time that you need to get there. And so I took his advice, went back to work. And I remember it was agony. (laughs) Sabbatical finishes up and I get back into the normal flow of things. And week after week, I have people say, Andrew, it's so good to have you back. Are you excited to be back here at work? What's the vision for the next season? I go, The vision is I'm leaving, but I don't know how to say that to you. But we just bided our time. We waited. Patience. Patience. And sure as shoot, week after week, the Lord set up conversations and moments and occasions and opportunity. And in the time that it needed to take, all that news came out. And it was like so obvious that it wasn't just something that God was doing with us but it was obvious that there was a fullness of time that had been reached in the church as well. So that when we left, we didn't leave with collateral damage, but everything about it smacked of the beauty of the Lord. Guys, God hasn't forgotten you. (laughs) That's really all I'm saying to you. He hasn't forgotten you. He's working all things together for your good. And do you know what one of the things that they said about Jesus was? They say this in Mark chapter seven. 
They said of Jesus, he has done everything well. Do you know that that's true of your life too? He's doing everything well. Do you know what you need to do? One thing, trust it and stay in it with God because he's got a great ending to your story. Can you receive that this morning? Would you stand to your feet now? And would you open your heart to Jesus? And would you begin to put your trust in Jesus afresh? And I want you to think about that thing. I don't know what your thing is. But, oh, that place that you're aching for God to break in and move. And you've been holding that before the Lord for a long time. I, maybe it's a relationship that went sideways a long time ago. And you've done everything that you know how to do to fix it. And it's not being fixed. Maybe like my friend Pam that I talked about, you've got pain in your body and you've been pleading with God to take the pain away. Maybe it's that. Maybe there's something with you psychologically. There's a trouble in your mind that you've been pleading with God. God, would you heal this, reconcile this, make it right? Maybe it's that thing. I don't know what it is. We've all got it. Would you hold that now before the Lord? I mean, I just want you to picture it and just here it is like in your hands. And I want you to say to God, I trust you. Say it again, church. Say it straight to Jesus Christ, the judge, the living and the dead who's working on your behalf. Say, I trust you, Jesus. I trust you, Jesus. Say it until you mean it, church. <laughs> I trust you, Jesus. We trust you, Jesus. We trust you, Jesus. All the affairs of our lives, we trust you, Jesus. With our marriages, we trust you, Jesus. With our singleness, we trust you, Jesus. Barren wombs in this place, we trust you, Jesus. Broken bodies in this place, we trust you, Jesus. Relationships that are not yet reconciled. We trust you, Jesus. People that we have been pleading with you for, for decades, that they'd come to a knowledge of the Lord. We trust you, Jesus. And we believe that the psalmist was right when he said that you're strong and that you're loving, that you haven't forgotten us and that you haven't forsaken us and that you're working all things together for good. So we say it again, we trust you, Jesus. And we believe that you're the God who's never left us and never forsaken us, that you've given us the pledge of your presence, that you've given us your promise. And we're gonna be all right. And so we remember before you this morning that on the night that you were betrayed, Lord Jesus, you took the bread and you broke it and you gave it to your disciples saying, take this all of you and eat. This is my body. It's broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, you took the cup, Jesus, and you said, drink from this, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many for the remission of sins. Do it whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And so, Lord Jesus, we hold bread and cup before you. You gave these things to us, not just tokens, but vehicles of your presence. And we trust that they would be that for us this morning. It's somehow... 
they remind us that in the same way that you have saved the world in the most paradoxical and counterintuitive way possible by surrendering yourself up to death, that our lives you're saving in ways that we cannot understand. So come, fill this moment with the mystery and the magnitude of your presence. And we find ourselves caught up in God again. Grant it, we're praying in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, I'm gonna invite the servers to come forward this morning to serve communion. Communion stations will be up front here for communion stations. As always, you'll exit your row on your right there and circle back around into your row. Come forward and receive a gluten-free cracker. You'll dunk it in the cup and then you can take it on the way back to your seat or if you're with your family, you can take it together with your family or your friends. But brothers and sisters, these are the gifts of God. And they're given for the people of God. Come forward and receive communion.